For many years, opponents of the Bible pointed to this story as one more proof that the Bible is historically inaccurate and that John's Gospel was clearly written many years, even several centuries after the events that it's talking about and not written by John because whoever wrote it had no first-hand knowledge of the city of Jerusalem at the time of Christ. Why would they say that or think it? Well, because for centuries there was no archaeological evidence at all for the existence of a pool that even came close to the one that's described in John chapter 5. Nor was such a pool apparently mentioned by any other Jewish historians. But excavations have uncovered an area of ancient pools in an appropriate part of old Jerusalem. Archaeology has long been used as a tool by men to dismiss the Bible, only for God to pick it up and use it to prove his word. These pools that they've discovered were man-made pools. Uh, they were fed by um, a purpose-built underground culvert. Um, all of that's now been exposed and the, those pools are a part of ancient Jerusalem which now are frequently visited by tourists. This story of this paralysed man who Jesus would heal stands out in the Gospel record due to the background of the story which, got, which John provides in the first four verses in chapter 5. It's the time of one of the major Jewish feasts. There were several in each calendar year which would prompt many people to visit Jerusalem in order to celebrate them and Jesus often would do the same. We're not told which of the feasts it was. Many commentators uh, plump for the feast of Passover uh, but there's simply no way of knowing whether or not it definitely was that particular feast. I think we can rest assured that if it was necessary for us to have known God would have ensured that John recorded it for us. So rather than venture into pointless speculation as to which of the feasts it was, it's enough to know that it was one of the major Jewish feasts that was taking place at that time. Uh, and Jerusalem, therefore, would have been cloaked with a, a heady mix of excitement and religious fervour. And then at verse 2, we're introduced to this scene which is unique to these few verses in the Gospels. It must have been quite a spectacle to see what sounds like it was quite a vast crowd of people, all sick and disabled in some way, occupying probably every space around this pool, all hoping to be the first to plunge into the water when they saw the waters being stirred up. There are quite a lot of unanswerable questions that this scene prompts in our minds. Now, were these people lying around this pool all the time? Were they endlessly there day after day? Was this certain time that's mentioned in verse 4 an event which occurred all year round? Or was it only at certain times of the year? Uh, was it random? Or was there a degree of predictability about it? Did it happen only at certain feast times? 
Um, is it perhaps directly linked to this feast that is taking place in Jerusalem at the moment? Was this stirring up of the water something that happened only during such feasts? Could they see the angel or just the movement of the water? Probably the latter. Why was only one person healed each time? When did all of this first begin? Who first discovered it? Well, these are questions that some people are probably itching to know the answers to, but we just don't know. What do we know? Well, we know that John was inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit. And so what he's saying here is enough for us to know, and it's the truth. We know that he's not using the kind of language which would normally prompt us not to take it literally, but rather to view it as some kind of analogy or picture language. No, this is presented as a factual narrative of real events. So that's how we read it, and that's how we will accept it. And so, therefore, being from John, his explanation that at a certain time, an angel, a messenger sent by God, did indeed stir up the water, and whoever was the first to step into that water, they would be healed of whatever physical ailment they had. Well, let's consider what is made known to us here in this in this event that's recorded here and i want us to uh, consider it under three headings and here's the first thinking about this paralyzed man who will be introduced to unable to access a certain cure unable to access a certain cure can any of us possibly begin to imagine the frustration and desperation this poor man must have known. How many times has he seen people whose bodies were so obviously blighted by illness and disease stepping into that water and being immediately and completely made well? Sometimes perhaps he's watched as people with lesser infirmities than his own have been healed. How tantalizingly close he is. Yet he may as well be a thousand miles away for all the good it's done him. Here's the water. Here comes the angel. There's the water stirring up. But he has no means of getting himself into the water in time. Someone is always there before him. Now, we don't know for certain if this man has been coming to this pool for each of his 38 years of illness. It certainly reads that way. And imagine if that is really what the case has been. 38 years. He knows that if he can just get into the water... He will be healed, but he cannot get there in time and he has no one to help him. 
It's a curious situation, unlike anything else really that we read of in the Bible. But at the same time, it speaks volumes about the spiritual plight of men and women all over the world. What misery there is in this world because of sin. What misery was in evidence around that pool as all of those sick people lay there waiting for the angel to stir up the water. And the misery that we see in this world is all because of sin. Now later on in John's Gospel, in the opening verses of chapter 9 in fact, Jesus will not permit us to jump to the conclusion that specific afflictions must be the consequence of particular sins. He won't allow us to to think that way. But what the Bible does clearly teach is that all of the misery in this world is miserable because the world is riddled with and ruined by sin. And there are so many situations which are unfair and unjust. And yet, in it all, even here at this pool, if you have an eye to see it, God provides evidence of his grace and mercy. Indeed, he does so every day in many different ways. Now, here at this pool, for example, it's true that not all of these poor people have been healed. In fact, possibly the way it's presented to us, comparatively few people of the many who are there actually get healed. But God, nevertheless, has not forgotten them. He hasn't abandoned them. He sees their misery and he moves to help. Here at the pool of Bethesda, he provides a certain degree of hope. Now, God can't be blamed for their misery. All of the world's misery is the result of our collective sinfulness. That's what the Bible teaches. God is not to be despised because he does not choose to heal all of them. With a proper biblical view of sin, actually you should be startled that he would care to heal any of them. There's another account of Jesus healing people which helps us to keep a a proper perspective of our own sinfulness. On one occasion, we read of Jesus healing ten lepers, but it's recorded that only one of them came back to thank him. Now, People berate God, people hate God for supposedly being so cruel, uh, so uncaring and unloving in permitting such suffering to exist in the world. We deserve not to suffer. And if you were such a loving God, you would not allow us to suffer. And yet at the same time, those same people are typified by those those nine healed lepers who even when God did step in and release them from their suffering, even when God did cure them of such a horrendous disease as leprosy, 
they gave no thought to Christ and they had no gratitude in their hearts towards him. And so you see that God would show any degree of mercy and grace towards such rebellious, self-centred, ungrateful people. That should be the thing that astounds us. And in this story, the citizens of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, in the midst of a sinful world, in the midst of all the suffering, which is the result of the sinfulness of mankind, God provides them with these regular glimmers of hope, a ray of light in the darkness as they await the one true light. And what do we see in this man? Well, we see as he, we see him at the side of the pool, but never able to get into the water, we see a certain cure which he cannot access. He has no one to help him. When this man declares that he has no one to help, it's indicative of the spiritual problem that all of us have. We've seen on recent Sunday mornings, and we'll see it again in this story later on, all of these encounters that Jesus has with the sick and dying show you and teach you two crucial truths at least. Firstly, that all of us have an issue far greater in consequence than any illness. And only God, and in these stories, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, only God has the power and the authority to do anything about that problem which we have. In fact, so severe is the effect of sin upon the human soul that for the most part we cannot even admit that the problem exists, let alone that we need a cure for it. We certainly could never access the cure by ourselves, but in fact... We need help even to see that we need a cure. Our condition spiritually is even worse than this paralysed man's physical condition. He at least can recognise there's something terribly wrong with him which needs putting right. We, in our sin, cannot even manage that. Our proud and stony hearts refused, they refuse to hear and listen and accept. Few of us, of course, would ever dare to be without fault, but even fewer can ever find it in themselves to acknowledge that they really are as needy as God in his word says we are. But this is the starting point, to be able to acknowledge before God that in all of the evils and sorrows that you experience in your life, the required response is not to look outside of yourself for someone else to blame and at whom you may point your finger, but to recognise that this is a fallen world and that it is you and I who have done the falling. We've fallen away from God. We've fallen away from righteousness fallen away from the truth, 
fallen short of his glory and brought the rest of creation down with us. And you can spend the rest of your life pointing your finger at someone else and at all of the problems that you perceive to be a far bigger problem than you are. But none of that will ever change you. And for as long as you remain unchanged in your sin, you continue to be part of the problem. And you will remain fallen and sinful and broken and condemned. And just like this man, desperately in need of a cure, which is completely out of your reach. All seemed totally hopeless for that man. Until one day, everything changed. And why did it change? For this reason. That certain cure came to him. Now we must leave it to the infinite and perfect wisdom of God as to why it is that on some occasions we see Jesus healing vast numbers of people in a single place, whilst at other times he apparently heals just the one. We do know that faith in those being healed plays a significant part. Faith specifically isn't mentioned in this story as it happens, but Jesus does frequently refer to it when healing people. And at the end of Matthew 13, when Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, that chapter concludes by telling us that Jesus did not do many mighty works there <clears throat> because of their unbelief. And we also, of course, have to bow down to the mystery of God's electing grace. A mystery in the sense that whilst in faith we believe and accept it, none of us could ever hope really to adequately understand or explain it. Who but God can know the mind of God? He would not be God if we could. But we see in this verse, in these verses, how it is that Christ works. This paralyzed man is described as being at a certain place, waiting for a certain event at a certain time. But what occurred was the thing that he was most in need of. To that certain man at a certain place and at a certain time came the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God who'd been sending down the angel to the water, but the good news of the gospel is that God has sent himself down to sinful men and women. And Jesus sees the man, and the one who is his creator knows all about him. He knows precisely why this man's body doesn't work. He knows why it doesn't work in terms of human biology, but more importantly, Jesus knows why it doesn't work in terms of God's sovereign purposes. He knows this man has been like this for 38 years. And Jesus meets this man with compassion and with mercy and with grace. Do you want to be made well? It seems kind of a silly question 
to ask the man. But it's actually the one question that Christ asks of everybody. Do you want to be made well? Do you? It's the question that's posed every time a sinful man or woman, boy or girl, hears the gospel being preached. Do you want to be made well? Whenever people are told of a loving God who sent his only begotten son into this world to die in the place of sinners in order to pay in full the penalty of their sins and who rose from the dead to secure for them victory over the grave and the certain hope of everlasting life. Whenever it's explained that in the Lord Jesus Christ, the condemnation that hangs over your head because of your guilt is taken away. That in him you may be washed and cleansed of all your sins. Here is the question that is put before you. Do you want to be made well? Do you want this soul cleansing forgiveness which only Christ can give? What of this man and his, para his paralysis? Of course he wants to be made well. But his own inadequacies prevent him. And that's all Jesus needs to hear from him. But Lord, I can't. Because Jesus can. Christ can provide what he needs. Rise, he says. Take up your bed and walk. And next come the two words which expose all of today's false teachers and fake healers who are making millions in some cases doing Satan's work for him. If you've ever watched such people, you'll see how those who are complaining of all kinds of aches and pains are supposedly freed from their diseases. You'll never see anyone in the kind of condition that this paralysed man was in wheeled onto the platform and walk off it, pushing their own wheelchair. You'll see some shameful hoaxes, but you'll never see the likes of this. It will go round the world in five minutes on social media if this kind of thing was really happening today. I once saw a recording of such a service and someone in a wheelchair who very obviously had quite severe, what looked like cerebral palsy or something very similar, was wheeled onto the platform. Someone who had really a very severe level of disability. And some minutes later, was wheeled back off the platform in exactly the same condition. The supposed healer, brazenly declaring that God has been at work but sometimes healing takes time or comes in stages. Or, of course, it's the person's own fault for not having enough faith. Oh, how very convenient as this con artist tries to let themselves off the hook. Look at what John says about Christ and this man. And immediately and immediately the man was made well 
physically restored, made whole and made complete. And he stands for the first time in 38 years and he takes up his bed and he walks. That's the genuine power of God at work. Christ, the certain cure, came to him, spoke to him, worked in his body, brought healing and restoration and actually isn't finished with him yet. Do you want to be made well in your soul? That which you can never do for yourself, Christ can do. And thirdly and finally, we see the greater cure that was oppressed, impressed upon this man. At the end of verse 9, a new theme is introduced. And in the following seven verses, the focus will actually gradually shift away from this man onto a completely new topic, which Jesus begins to fully engage with at verse 17. And that's not a major part of our consideration this morning, but I can't really ignore it either. Up to this point, John has kept from us the fact that all of this took place on a Sabbath day. And if it had been an important weekend of feast, then it would have been an even more significant Sabbath. If ever there was a Sabbath day about which the Jewish leaders would have been very particular, it was one like this day. And at least some of them surely must have known this man. He's been hanging around this pool for 38 years, which adds to its authenticity, of course, that he really was a genuine case of healing. And today they see him walking, walking. And yet all they have for him is contempt that he would dare to carry his bed on the Sabbath. Such is their heart before God. It's unbelievable, isn't it? If ever there is a day to display compassion and mercy and grace, it's the Lord's day. If ever there's a day for bringing relief and love to those in need, it's the Sabbath day. If ever there's a day for doing good to others, it's the Sabbath. Remarkably, we discover in verse 13 that the man who used to be paralysed doesn't even know who it is who's healed him because Jesus had withdrawn from the crowd. But a little later, they're reunited in the temple. Which, given what I said earlier about those nine healed lepers who didn't bother to come back and thank Jesus, perhaps tells us that there was a little bit more something to this man who's been healed of his paralysis. With his newfound strength and ability, with this new life that Jesus has just given him, What's the first thing he does? What's the first thing you'd do? Where's the first place you'd go? This man goes to church. He goes to worship. He goes to give thanks. Now this man, remember, had not called out to Christ as many did when they needed help. But Jesus has come of his own accord and singled out him and come to him. And perhaps verse 14 provides us with a little hint that there was something a bit deeper about this man that Jesus could see and knew. And Jesus has one more thing to say to him. It's an astonishing thing, really. He tells the man that there there is one thing that could come upon him which will be so much worse than even his 38 years of paralysis. There is one place where you might find yourself one day and you would spend all eternity 
wishing that you were back at the side of that pool, paralysed, because that will be so much more preferable. There's a day of judgment approaching. And if you would avoid it, you must listen and take note of what Jesus says here. You must turn from your sin. There is no salvation without repentance. There's no sanctification in the life of a believer without an ongoing repentance from sin. But in turning from your sin to the certain cure, you may be made well in your soul. That was Christ's deepest concern for this man. This is the story of a certain man who at a certain time in a certain place was made well. Do you have that testimony? Might today be your time? Might this be your place when Christ would come to you that you in repenting of your sins, might be made well in him.